0: Welcome to Agam the Climate Podcast, a literary podcast on climate and consciousness. As we grapple with new uncertainties, we bring you the voices of poets, artists, and scientists who find solace and strength in the imagination. This is Padma Perez for the Agam Agenda. Join me as we reimagine the climate crisis through stories and art. excited about how the storytelling circle of Agam the Climate podcast is widening. You may have already noticed that we're featuring voices from beyond the pages of the Agam anthologies. There's just so much good work being done by writers who focus on humans in nature and the climate crisis. In this interview with Sigrid Gayangos, we talk about writing intersectionality into fiction, but without mentioning intersectionality. And we have lots of fun. In 2020, Sigrid's short story, Galan Siang, was one of 10 finalists in the Everything Change Climate Fiction Contest, which received a total of 580 submissions from 77 countries. Here is Sigrid introducing herself beautifully with a short piece she wrote for the University of the Philippines Global Grace LGBTQ Workshop.
1: Where I come from, I am from big Sunday brunches in the family compound, my siblings, cousins, and I wearing our pristine church clothes and being in our best behavior while the adults take turns in commandeering the kitchen. I am from dishes made from what the sea had to offer, cooked in ways known to coastal towns in Iloilo, Cebu, Catabato, and Zamboanga. I am from the dishes that somehow made their way to our shores. I am sati for breakfast, knickerbocker for dessert, and marang any time of the day. I am from that cozy little house in the hilly terrain of Pasonanca, that portion of Zamboanga that smells oddly of pine cones and nestled way up in the city, some kilometers away from downtown Pueblo. I am from Moon River played on the piano while in the distance there is an off-key singing of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, their duet somehow perfected. I am from wild greens, calamansi, attis, and peppers all grown in the fresh dirt under the blazing sun in our tiny yard. Then I am from that antique bungalow with one room that used to be solely for storing arms then that two-floor building with creaky floorboards and locked storage rooms, then the two-bedroom apartment downtown that finally spelled quiet for us. I am from finding home then feeling lost for almost a decade in Quezon City. I am from that frequent need to move homes. I am Chavacano, Hiligaynon, Binisaya, Hokkien English and snippets of the Galog and Tausug all rolled up, complex, and compounded in one sentence. I am from constantly shifting linguistic gears depending on whom I talk to. I wonder if I have a motherless tongue, or one with multiple mothers. I mourn the fact that I write primarily in English, repressing my rich history of linguistic pluralism. This is something that I still continue to interrogate and something that I hope to address in my future works. I am either a quirky math trivia from Papa or tales of seafaring from Mama before I go to sleep, both of them weavers of tales of wonder and enchantment. I am from learning as a child that a tree trunk looks like a hyperbola, that a Pringles chip, is a doubly ruled surface quite like a hyperbolic paraboloid, and that an isaw looks like a compressed sine curve. I am learning early on how much each type of fish would sell depending on the season, and knowing how to properly scale and clean them even before I learned how to cook rice. I am from the people of pasonanka Tubungan, the rapidly evolving pueblo, and the little pockets of the city that refuse to change. I am from the kitchens and couches and spare rooms of the friends I met in college and the strangers I encountered in my travels. Those who overwhelmed me with joy and food and stories and singing. Lots of singing. I am from the well-worn Kodak albums that I still take with me wherever I go, sorted and filled and labeled by 20-year-old me. I keep these albums in a box under my bed, and I let all these lost faces drift beneath my dreams.
0: I'm not going to ask you to introduce yourself because I think that was a beautiful way already for you to introduce yourself. There's so much about that short piece that I find very striking. But first, for what purpose or what readership did you write where I come from?
1: To be honest, I I never knew that this would be published, (laughs) because this was a prompt in a workshop that we joined before, the UP Global Grace LGBTQ Workshop. The title is precisely the name of the prompt, where I come from, and it was to sort of historicize ourselves and, in a way, our writing process.
0: There's so much I want to pull out of it and ask you about, so... In that piece, I see several elements that are also present in your stories that I've been able to read. But since you started with food, could we start with? <laughs> could we start with, with food? food? Um, so, what did you mean? What did you mean to say about yourself when you wrote that you come from Sunday big Sunday brunches and you mentioned even calamansi and marang and different foods.
1: So I come from a long line of fisher folks on both sides of the family. Both sets of grandparents, they moved from one region to another across Visayas and Mindanao in search of better fishing grounds. And then at one point in the 1950s, both families decided to finally settle in Zamboanga City. So they were very, very pathetic folks who considered several places their homes and when they moved from one home to another, they brought along pieces of the previous homes with them through meals and through language, through cooking. So when I think of heritage, I really think of food. So all these cuisines from the different places that my grandparents and those who came before them brought with them and all those stories that we shared over big family meals. That was a general project, a vision of it. Um, now, the more specific lines... So, uh, there really was um, a room just for firearms in my Lola's house. He was the president of the Fishermen's Association in Zamboanga back then. And at that time, the southern waters were still not as safe to venture on as it is now. So, they, they had to arm themselves and to protect themselves from pirates and other entities. <laughs> So, yeah, we we had that room that was just four arms. And in fact, the columns of the house, I learned later on that there were starfish and seahorse built into them. Apparently, it's a common belief to strengthen the foundation, not just of the house, but of the family as well. So that um, that was the main house. And it was in a family compound, which is located in a coastal area in Zamboanga, like with as with all family compound stories, there were, you know, the happy big brunch stories, but also there were the complexities of <laughs> different families living together and the small fishing venture that turned into a family business. Uh, and as much as it was fun and all, it, it was also like we never really had privacy. Fast forward to several years later and, you know, we finally but to move out from that and stayed in downtown Pueblo. But I realize now that a lot of our movements across Zamboanga were also were due to the political unrest. Um, as I've mentioned earlier, most of my childhood was spent in Paso So this is in the mountainous area of Zamboanga.
0: In spite of all that movement, Zamboanga still is like the place where... Where not just where you're from, as you wrote, but the place where many, I think, of your fiction writing takes place and also by the sea, right? So given all this movement, uh, you also mentioned 10 years of feeling lost in in
1: Quezon City.
0: Um, Where is home now?
1: Mm. Well, I've always struggled with this question, to be completely honest. And I guess depending on... Where I'm at at the moment, the answer varies as well. So back in high school, if I, I got asked this question. in as much as I love my hometown, it felt too small. And I just couldn't wait until I could get out of it. That, that, I had the freaky one-track mind back in high school. I just want to go out and see the rest of the world. Well, now that I've lived in, well, I've spent 10 years in Quezon City. And by the end of May, that will mark my second year living here in Dumaguete. Now that I've been away from home for a significant amount of time, I just can't wait to return and live there, perhaps permanently, and hopefully do something to uplift the writing community back there. So yeah, now I guess I would say home is some wonder.
0: It's funny, no? I think because I, I grew up in Baguio, and I think those of us that grow up in what feel like small communities, when we're teenagers, we really can't wait to get out.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially now during the lockdown. Like I have been thinking a lot about you know what, what I'm doing here in Dumaguete, and what if perhaps I can replicate that in Zamboanga City. So yeah, I feel like, because like, I went, I returned home right after graduation, but I think it was a premature return. I didn't know what to do with myself back then. I feel like now I had more idea of what I want to do when I uh, re-return. May I ask what you're doing now in Dumaguete? So here in Dumaguete, I work closely with our Joseph Dazov who is an excellent writer. He writes primarily in Benissaya, and he's based in Cebu. So together with him and several other writers, mostly from Visayas and Mindanao, we managed to create this Cebu Writers Workshop, which is a very ND, DIY approach to the workshop process as we know it. And we also co-run this journal called Quintican, and it champions um, writings from Mindanao and Visayas mostly. Aside from that, together with fine arts folks of Sileman University, we're starting out this reading room, which is primarily to give space to artists and writers to talk about their process, talk about their craft, and have the space for exhibition as well. The main goal really is to decentralize literary and art discourse, to take it outside of academic institutions, and make it more accessible to the public.
0: Thank you. That that sounds like really amazing work, and this is what you hope to bring home yes. to Zamboanga when you're able to go home. Yes. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully
1: soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't wait.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're all a little well, not a little. We're all stranded right now, wherever we are. So. Thank you for sharing your notions of home with us, how you've taken it to many different places, and it's back to Zamboanga eventually. What about those six languages you listed? Are you fluent in all those
1: languages? I can understand Tausug, but I can never speak. Yeah, there is, I am more or less. We grew up in a compound where people talk in different languages, so... And I guess also because of Zamboanga's location, it being a portal city. So it's pretty common for people there to be very multilingual. Chavacano, well, um, everyone in Zamboanga speaks Chavacano. Hiligaynon is from my father because he's originally from Gimbal, Iloilo. And Benisaya, Um, no one, I think, is Benisaya in the family, but there are several Benisaya-speaking people in Zamboanga as well. Um, Hokkien is from my mother's side. She graduated in a Chinese school. While we are taught Mandarin in school, the primary language used during Chinese classes were Hokkien. And I guess because there are just so many languages I ended up writing in English, it it felt like the more neutral (laughs) among the languages. But now I'm actually exploring writing in Chavakan. And how is that going? It's so difficult. Oddly, <laughs> it's difficult. Like I, I use Chavacano with with my peers. We we primarily speak in Chavacano, but then it's it's the kind of Chavacano that's unique to my high school, and so that's Chavacano. with snippets of Hokkien and English and Tagalog. So when people say like Taglish, uh, that's nothing. It's it's just two languages <laughs> we mix in Chavacano and Hokkien into the Taglish mix. So it's very informal. So I I, I cannot seem to construct a sentence purely in Chavacano. Like, it feels odd to me because we don't speak Chavacano that way. But I'm trying. (laughs) I'm trying. And um, I hope, though, that there will be more writers from Zamboanga who write in Chavacano. When Christine Ong-Muslim, who did, um, she did this very interesting folio promoting various Philippine languages. We had a hard time finding entries for Chavacano. So there is a shortage in that. And I hope the younger generation of writers can address that.
0: That's great. Thank you. And so, you know, with all these languages and being so multilingual, and um, I love how you pointed out Taglish is just two languages. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So you, 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 in where i come from and just speaking with you i get this sense of a very multifaceted identity and i also sense that in the stories that i've been able to read what's your relationship with with that with that plurality that you describe like is it something you're fully comfortable with or is it something like you use the word interrogate to refer mainly to your use of language and your choice of writing in English. And now it's great to hear you're trying to write in Chabacano as well. But how would you describe the way you feel in that multifaceted way or pluralist identity?
1: Okay, so language is intrinsic to the expression of culture. So, with the plurality of languages that we grew up with, it was Pretty much growing up in a multicultural household as well. But honestly, I never paid much attention to it until later on, like when we were first asked in school what our mother tongue was. That was like, I guess like when you live in a culture, it's everyday to you. It's normal. That's your natural. That's your default. So until you get exposed to a different mode of thinking, that's when you stop and observe. It's different where I come from. So yeah, before it was really a non-issue, especially when I was still in Zamboanga. Because that was the default. Everyone was just multilingual. But then in college, and you know, like there are questions about mother tongue and in which tongue do we write? That was really when I was caught off guard, unsure how to answer it. I jokingly responded before to a professor that, well, I don't have a mother tongue. I have, I have several mothers for my tongue, but I'm not sure (laughs) really like how to further problematize this one because yeah it's inherent to me it's always been natural to me so it's just a default that's great and please don't problematize it just because
0: i asked this question (laughs) 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 i'm curious though did you ever have that experience coming, moving to Quezon City from Zamboanga, where you had a word for something and you kept using it. And then when you used it here, you realized that only you and your peers back home understood that word? Oh my
1: God, a lot. (laughs) But the main thing that I remember was my first Ikot ride. Wait, see, I can't even remember the Tagalog word for it because I only know the Chavacano word. Sukle, <laughs> Like so, I handed my my fare. And then I was waiting for the change, and I kept on, like, signaling to, to the manong driver. I kept on asking, sincilio. <laughs> like, I didn't know that sincilio isn't a Tagalog word. Apparently, <laughs> it's chavacano. <laughs> I kept on saying, Sincilio, Sincilio, <laughs> But then nothing came <laughs> until I realized, like, Ay, it's not, it's not. <laughs> and, and I had to say it in English because I didn't know, like, uh, the word sukle didn't come to me naturally. Like, um, manong the change, nakakahiya. <laughs> it's, so, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> like, no one knows. Like, people would say, I'm conyo, conyo mo naman. Ka. Like I'm not, though. I speak Chavacano. It's just that no one else speaks Chavacano. So I resort to English. I love that story. That's <laughs> so
0: funny. And I'm sure a lot of people can can relate. A lot of people that moved here to Manila later in life share that experience. <laughs> and it's it's. It's always funny and I hope it's just that harmlessly funny and never never yes. <laughs> a dangerous situation for anyone because yeah. since in I can imagine it could well be in in different contexts right yeah um,
1: yeah
0: <laughs> language isn't always um, a safe space for everyone anyway moving on I want to ask you in what ways does that plurality, that I love how you're so comfortable with it and that you don't feel the need to problematize it. Thank you for being that way.
1: <laughs> so how does that enter into your writing? Ah, I, I guess much of my fascination with the sea, aside from it just being all sorts of cool but it ties in with this alterity of the waters the porous and liquefied borders the amphibiousness of people who have to navigate vastly different environments so that sense of plurality i see that when i see seascapes as well wow
0: can you tell me more about the amphibiousness of people
1: Something I noticed with those who live in coastal communities, with how they navigate their everyday lives, it's so different when they're by the sea or when they have to go out and be closer on land. I feel like it really has something to do with that, with how people act differently when they move from shore to land, the sea, that sort of space that they have to navigate. I feel like personally, when, when by the sea, I'm more, more relaxed. <laughs> Whereas when online I get more anxious, more anxious. So that kind of navigating through different environments.
0: That was that was so nice, the amphibiousness of people. I love the reversal there because we often describe other species in human terms. And I love how you describe humans in amphibious terms. I want to ask you about last year. I think it was a hard year for everybody, but you had some really good news and we were all thrilled for you. You joined the Everything Change Climate Fiction Contest. How did you learn about the competition and what made you decide to join?
1: There was another climate fiction contest. Um, I forgot the name, but that one, it was the usual doomsday, dark themes that we wanted. So when I was conceptualizing the story i hadn't written a single word yet but it was hibernating in my head i just knew that i didn't want it to end that way in a very you know dark tone i wanted it to be like while not cheerful overall i wanted it to be optimistic at least towards the end so i shelved that story and then i saw that everything changed fall and having read the previous volume where they have stories that grapple with real issues such as the future and ethics of our food sources, um, the connection and disconnection between technology and nature and all the interpersonal conflicts that arise no matter how peaceful the world is. So, yeah, I I, I like that volume really. And then plus the framing of the contest, which is apparent in the contest name, Everything Changed, uh, lifted from Margaret Atwood's um, previous essay as well. So yeah, I thought, okay, this is the kind of climate fiction that I want to write.
0: So could you please tell us a little bit about your story? What was it
1: about? So Delancia is the name of um of a bird that's endemic to the Philippines. And it's a story set in a post apocalyptic world and follows the surviving humans in their community settlement on Mount Colombato. So it's really about these characters who, in the aftermath of destruction, are trying to find their way back to uh, what being human is, to actually live and not just survive. And a lot of it also has to do with how the loss of landscape also entails the loss of family, the loss of language, and the loss of memory.
0: And what is Galansiang?
1: It's a black starling bird. It's a species of a, a black starling bird. There used to be many of them in Zamboaca. In fact, I I got that from my father, really, because he had a lot of stories of climbing um, Abong-Abong. Abong-Abong is the local term of Mount Palong Bato. So he had stories of just going up to Abong-Abong and then with a slingshot. (laughs) Sometimes you would, because there were too many of them, they were considered pests back then. When we lived in Pasanangay, my father would take my sister and I up abong-abong as well. And he would spot Balenciang here and there every now and then. But I don't know, like through time with the continuous development happening in Zamboanga as well, um, we don't see much of it anymore.
0: Does it have red eyes?
1: It does, it does. And they make this really high-pitched noise.
0: I think that's the Asian glossy starling. I'm not an expert, but <laughs> but I think that's what it probably was or is. And um, yeah, just to share with our listeners that when I wrote to Sigrid, part of my hook, because this is the first time we're meeting, right? So part of my hook was Sigrid, I, I saw for Galanciang today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was so envious that I haven't seen Galanciang <laughs> for ages. <laughs> So I, I want
0: to share also for listeners that you can download Everything Change. You can download the book. The previous volumes are up, but Sigrid's award-winning story, congratulations, is in volume three. So it's easy to find. It's up on the... Um, Arizona State University site, but you can also just search for everything change climate fiction and it should come up, right? Yes. So congratulations because you were one of the winners and that's why your story is in the book. How did you how did you feel um when you learned that your story was chosen? Um
1: <laughs> well it was the only story I wrote last year. Last year was really a a difficult time for everyone so uh, the moment I received the news I honestly went back to sleep it was a difficult time for me personally like I'm sorry like of course I was thrilled but you know last year we were dealing with all sorts of things so I was feeling I don't know like I was just not Excited for anything, so even when I first heard that news, honestly, I was thinking like, in the grand scheme of what's happening right now, what does my little literary news mean? But then, you know, it was cyclical for me. (laughs) So right after that, I called I called my mom and then I processed the news with her, and she was like, oh, out of you know, how many hundred submissions he made it and then uh, she asked me what the story was about and I told her what it means to me to have written that story and that's when it started to sink in like, oh yeah it's 10 10 stories um from different countries really so that's when like it wasn't an instantaneous happiness sort of thing but like it took quite some time for it to sink in and then when it did it was just like okay I hope a lot of people will get to read this. <laughs>
0: I hope so too because it's a lovely story and I, I love the reimagining that you did of how communities will survive and thrive and look out for each other. And without giving away too much, Galansiang is the key here to also how language is going to change along with the climate crisis. So yeah, please do look for Everything change Volume 3 and it's packed with good stuff. Speaking of good stuff, do you have a favorite from among the other stories in the volume?
1: I do. Um, Those They Left Behind, I love that one because it's really, you know, with the space exploration that some of the billionaires are prioritizing right now. It's really, it questions the ascent of the privileged few to Mars. And then the scavenging on Earth really reminds me of another anime that I like, Space Reapers. And uh, that story also centralizes on three women characters. So I like that one, Those They Left Behind. And another one, <laughs> perhaps because of my bias, with anything sea, I also love The God of the Sea. So the card of BC is uh, it really has this gut puncher ending, and the first sentence immediately hooks you to the story. And if you're into mythology and folklore, I guess you'd love that too. Thank you for sharing
0: that. So, was what was the process of the contest like? Did you just submit and they judged and then published, or how did it go?
1: We submitted, and it was really anxiety. Filled <laughs> months because they, uh, there were three reading rounds, and every time you made it to the next round, they would email you. Like it was my first time having to deal with that kind of acceptance, like per level acceptance, because normally it's just send your story, let's forget about it, and then we'll either send you. A letter of acceptance or rejection. But in here, they were like first round, I was thrilled. siguro that's why when I got the finals, I was like, I'm I'm tired of this one. <laughs> the first email I was like I was over the moon happy when they said we made our initial round of reading and you made it to the first round. That was when I was ecstatic. <laughs> but after that, like second round, they are like, okay, you made it or us. was like, Oh, well, come on, just get in touch with me when you've made your final decision. <laughs> but <laughs> after that, one after three three more rounds, they finally, finally gave us the, the list of 10 stories that made it to the anthology.
0: (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for your work. And yeah, I think people share that feeling that it's understandable that doubt now what's the point of this given the, the bigger picture and what everyone's going through. But um, I hope you and other writers out there know that there are readers who who thrive on, on your words and on your work. So, so thank you. So that said, I want to ask you what your thoughts are on the role of writers and artists in this time of the climate crisis.
1: Um, beyond raising awareness, I think art has this inherent ability that allows us to imagine better and just futures. So scientists, researchers, policymakers, and grassroots organizations are doing their share of the work. But um, we also do need a humanistic climate response that pays attention to the human experience, including um, effects and emotions, human values within different social, cultural contexts. This is where literary or visual arts come in, how they can contribute positively. But (laughs) I'd like to add to that, like, well, obviously, I do recognize the role of literature and arts in addressing this. But I also keep in mind what one of my favorite poet activists, Konchitina Cruz, said, that there is something amiss in collective action when all that comes out of it is more poetry. Definitely, there is a need to write more and create more about this one, but I feel like um, there is no substitute to getting our, to our bodies on the street to actually getting the job done. So if we can do both, then that's ideal. <laughs> I
0: wonder if we heard Jean B. Cruz say this at the same talk. It was during a which literary festival, it was it? Against Forgetting in Quezon City? That also really stayed with me that it's, it's, yes, writing is important. It's necessary work, but more important than that is we have to be warm bodies on the streets as well. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that with everyone. And that was, yeah, that was super memorable um, when she said that. So for us in Agam Agenda, we keep exploring how to get writers and artists more engaged with the climate crisis? Do you have any thoughts on what encourages writers to investigate it more closely? Because we also see the other side where, you know, um, Amitav Ghosh wrote about this, how it's so strange that none of our literature deals with the climate crisis. But I think now it's clear that a lot of the literature is now dealing with it. But what do you think? encourages those that do get into it, like you, what encouraged you to, to bring it into your writing?
1: Honestly, I, I wasn't fully aware of, that I was writing climate fiction when I was writing the first few stories that apparently read, like climate fiction. So when I wrote The Last of the Samasala, which deals mostly with species extinction, uh, I was just writing from the local stories, the ones that I hear from the coastal villages, uh, you know the, the capacity of human greed and the effects of that with the limited resources that we have. EAS is doing a wonderful job in creating a framework in and in actively creating a space for writers write primarily climate fiction. But I think not so much as encourages, but I mean urgency it's the most pressing problem so i feel like especially with this generation like what else do we like we see it all around us it really is urgency great thank you okay
0: and the other side of the coin is so there's the urgency and those that see it want to address it in writing what is it that might prevent or discourage or repel a writer from dealing with climate change
1: Because on one hand, we have urgency, but on the other, it it can get overwhelming. Like when you come face to face with the fact and understand the enormity of the entire situation, it can get pretty overwhelming. And we have our flight or fight response. Sometimes people would rather choose escapism because it's just, it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) In your
0: writing, when I read your stories, I was really struck by how a short story can be so packed with plants, animals, seascapes, landscapes, even class differences and class structure and gender as well. And the feeling I get reading your stories is they're not just there as backdrop or setting or effect, they're really... These details that you bring in are really integral to how the story unfolds. Could you tell us more about this? Is it a practice? Do you consciously bring those things in?
1: For me, the fight for environmental justice is no separate from the fight for queer and women's liberation. Since both fights have been oppressed by capitalism and patriarchy, two systems that continue to reinforce each other, there is, well, an inextricable link that ties climate crisis, gender-based oppression, and neoliberal capitalist economy. We're not the center. Like, uh, we're past the narrative of exceptionalism, that we can always find a solution. It's it is a band-aid solution to everything. Um, because without us, the earth would continue surviving just fine. It's us that need to work. So we're not the center of this narrative. We need to go beyond that. You
0: just completed a collection of stories.
1: Is it okay to talk about that? or um, It's okay. <laughs> is it something we can look forward to reading soon? Well, if the publishers are listening, I'm just kidding. If the publishers are listening, please accept my manuscript. <laughs> I'm half kidding. But I, I submitted it for consideration. Uh, the working title is Laut, which is what we call the Sea Back home. And it's 13 tales that were inspired primarily by the stories I heard growing up in coastal communities and from the seafaring people I interacted with. Most of the stories, if I'm not mistaken, are are magical realists. And I hesitate to call them speculative fiction because it feels like a very Western lens. In fact, I even hesitate to call it magical realism because it's just realist for the people concerned. So, But there is that. Hopefully, hopefully, it will get published. But yeah, if the publishing house that I initially submitted it to won't, I'll definitely find another way <laughs> to put it out there. I'm sure you'll
0: find a way, and I'm sure a publisher will see that your work needs to be out there for more readers um do you have any techniques or tips or thought exercises that you can share that other writers can try if they want to be more deliberate about decentering the human in their stories Do you have any suggestions
1: there's really no substitute to reading reading and research i think craft can be worked On later on, but if you don't have that initial foundation, that that insight that you need, and really the best way to address that is do need it, so do that first, and then the writing will will follow later on. Okay, spoken like a like a teacher <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Research. I'm, it's, it's not the most romantic sounding answer. it sounds kJ even <laughs> but I don't see any substitute really especially with climate fiction because it's it's an entanglement of science, social sciences, all sort of things so really just read and stay informed. Yeah, science, social
0: sciences, development issues, and like you said, gender issues and social justice issues, they're all tied together. And it's been said before that it's not that climate change is bigger than any of those one issues, but that climate change may make them all more difficult and bigger and harder to deal with. So... When you think about climate change, you yourself, Sigrid, personally, where does your heart and mind go? I I
1: suppose it's a twofold process. First, it goes to the necessary critiquing of imperialist patriarchal perspectives of nature and the devastating impact that, well, Western industrial technologies have had on indigenous peoples and, and ecologies. So after that angry mode, it goes to the more urgent matter of figuring out how do we dismantle binary paradigms by resituating humans in their relationships to the environment through transforming how we define the human and our concepts of agency as well.
0: I think that's where your mind goes. So I'm gonna probe a little bit more. How about your heart, Sigrid? I mean, thank you. Thank you for that. That's all. That's all important. But where do you go when you think about climate change or where do you think you'll be? Where do you want to be?
1: Well, back to my relationship with the sea. Even before I had concepts of climate fiction, of how the limitedness of our resources, really the first thing why primarily, this is how it becomes personal, um, primary reason why the fishing venture. It's up being an option for the family. It's like it was a long line of Fisher folks way way back, and then somehow it had to stop in this generation because well, there are no more like overfishing. There's overfishing, so it's no longer a sustainable way of living. So eventually, people had to choose other career choices. this is me looking back in retrospect, trying to to patch things up. But back then, it was simply accepted that okay, there's no way to continue this type of livelihood anymore and so we need to stop our laces fishing but then you know it, of course it took years before I finally realized that of course this is all tied down to climate change as well and really, it has something to do with the sea as well. And I realize now how a lot of my anxieties, that is a part of the story, had to do with my relationship with the sea. And so like the sea that we know now is this body of blueness that we just wanted to go to and relax. But in the Lensiang, it's this toxic liquid that continues to claw its way on the ever-sinking island. So it, it, it becomes personal for me when I think about what it does to the sea.
0: Yeah the sea it's um that's where you're coming from and and everybody is going to have a personal like something that personally matters or even personally hurts i mean i hesitate a bit to say that because there's already too much talk about how horrible climate crisis is going to be but but it is going to hurt for for many um and i think it's it's um we need to talk about that too like you said earlier right it, the science is important policy is important but we need to we need to feel it so that we can act on it and that's part of the reimagining right is we need to feel its presence yeah wow how did that get so heavy so fast
1: <laughs> <laughs> because we were talking about the heart
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of the heart, it's not all sadness and heartbreak. There's also joy, there's also delight and excitement. And we need that also to keep going. So now I have some fun questions for you. <laughs> Let's switch. Let's switch yes. to the fun questions now. You mentioned it already, your story, the last Sama Selang. How do you pronounce it? Sama Selang? Sama Selang. Sama Selang. And I was so intrigued by the samaselang. Could you tell us more about it?
1: Samaselang is something known primarily to coastal villages. When you say it, it's this. It's not really a mermaid. It's more like um, some would say bipedal. Some would say a tail being. But really, people consider them to be the the rulers of the deep. They have this also. Uh, like they're not sure if they're good or bad. They can bring you fortune. They can also bring you bad luck. It depends really. When I was doing my undergraduate thesis, which was also a story collection, I came across this anthropology book and it was only mentioned as a footnote. And I was so excited because like, I kept hearing selang," but I didn't even know how it was spelled because it was mostly through oral narrative. So when I read that, even if it was only a footnote, like, okay, someone recorded it and it's real. Like, it, Well, I didn't need that validation for it to be real, but well, it's on print. And I looked it up further online and then I only saw one other reference that, uh, that mentions it. <laughs> and it's written by this English marine biologist. When he talked about his foray into the Southern Seas and people were talking about probable causes as to why there was a sudden disturbance in the waters and people attributed it to the Samaselang.
0: Did you ever talk to anyone who has seen one?
1: Uh, No, not really. But there were many talks of of Samaselang. Usually, I like um, a story of someone else that was passed on, but I've never met yet (laughs) someone who has personally seen a Samaselang. Thank you. So that's a story that is specific
0: to coastal communities in Zamboanga, is it? Or is it more widely spread?
1: Uh, I think Bahasa-speaking coastal communities would be familiar with this, although I think they would have a different name for it. But Samaselang's, um, uh, yeah, it's it's Bahasa. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, the cat. <laughs> Na ng pagkain.
0: <laughs> oh well that's my cue. What other than human species has a strong presence in your life?
1: Uh, outside the page then it's the cat. <laughs> but on the <laughs> page on the page I'm really fascinated with turtles. Somehow they figure into my story. lagi Me Turtle.
0: <laughs> what is it about the
1: turtle that you're fascinated with? I like the idea that they have their homes with them. They carry their homes with them. So I guess that also ties in with my idea of like moving from one place to another. And I like how it's just so convenient, like when you want to isolate yourself, you just, I don't know, shake into your home. And then there you have it, your own special place of isolation. But they're also really just beautiful creatures. Like swimming with them and their beautiful carapace. <laughs> I could go on and on. <laughs> so
0: let's let's
1: not <laughs> let's not go there. So you've seen a large one. Oh yes, wow. so many here in Dumaguete. Um, if you go on diving expeditions in Apollo. Uh, sorry. Oh my God, Apollo uh, Island. The name is there. Apo Island, where was I thinking of Apollo? Yes, on Apo Island and in and, and Darwin generally. Great. Thank you, Sigrid.
0: It was so nice meeting you. And I enjoyed, you too. So much. I enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you for listening. Agam the Climate Podcast is produced by the Institute for Climate and Sustainable Cities and Ground Bravo Studios with music by Rohan Remando. Follow Agam the Climate Podcast on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our creative collaborations and our forthcoming anthology of climate literature from the Global South, visit our website agam.ph. That's A-G-A-M dot P-H. You can also engage with Agam Agenda on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.